Hi, good morning. Um, I'm Laura Howard. I'm a senior at Wheaton College. For those of you who don't know me, um, I'm a philosophy and Bible theology major. Um, and I'm going to talk about Ruth today. Um, most of what I'm going to say is not my own. I took a Hebrew class where we went through the book of Ruth and also took a class called Ruth and Esther. So I have to give credit to um, Andrew Abernathy, who's I think actually going to talk next week on the prophets, um, and Andrew Hill. And then I've, I am also influenced by um, this commentary on Ruth by Judy Fentress Williams. Um, yeah, so a lot of that comes from there, but I don't have like the specifics of what's from where. We're going to read the whole book of Ruth together today. I think we need to, to get a feel for the significance of the life of this person, and it's short, so we'll be able. We can, hope, we can and hopefully will learn together from who Ruth is as a person, but there's also plenty to be learned from her story as a whole. I invite you to hear the story with a few considerations in mind. The story of Ruth is not that of a romance between Ruth and Boaz. That's just not what's most important here. It's about Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi, God's faithfulness to both of them, and God's faithfulness to us. Um, so as you can see, the, the section from the, the litany um, for Hannah and Ruth, and all who, all who through love and devotion witness to the faithfulness of God, this book is all about faithfulness and how yeah, Ruth attests to that. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And when they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. These first few verses of Ruth let us know that something is wrong. First, these are the days when the judges ruled. As Rob mentioned last week, the time when the judges ruled was largely marked by violence and disobedience, and it was a particularly dangerous time for women. And there's a famine in the land. Elimelech's response to the famine in the land is to leave the land and go to Moab. This relocation to Moab should unsettle us for two reasons. First, these people's identity is hugely tied to their land. This is the land given to the Israelites by Yahweh, who has promised to take care of his people there. God-fearing Israelites don't leave the land. Second, Elimelech chooses to go to Moab of all places. The land is named for one of the two sons resulting from Lot's incest with his daughters as recorded in Genesis 19. Moab is also the place of the desert wanderings. And then there's this lovely passage. No Ammonite or Moabite shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of their descendants shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord, because they did not meet you with food and water on your journey out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Yet the Lord your God refused to heed Balaam, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you, because the Lord your God loved you. You shall never promote their welfare or their prosperity as long as you live." Moab, then, is in every way associated with opposition to Yahweh. Israelites would have seen Moab as a place riddled with disobedient people, perhaps even a place where Yahweh isn't. The ancient Near East polytheistic understanding was that gods were geographically constrained. It's also not a good sign that Elimelech chooses to leave the Promised Land. He leaves behind his identity as an Israelite in doing so, but the fact that he leaves for Moab makes his choice all the worse. 
This is not a great testament to Elimelech's faith. Elimelech brings his wife and sons with him to Moab. This aligns with our understanding that the building blocks of Israelite society are the family unit with a patriarch at the center of each family. A person is able to operate in society because of her family connections. Without these family connections, a person is unable to operate in society. This is why the orphan and the, window, the widow are so often referenced as the sort of least of these in the Old and New Testaments. But back to Elimelech's family. If he goes to Moab, so do his wife Naomi and his sons. Names in the book of Ruth have significance. Naomi means pleasantness, Mahlon means sickly, and Kilion means destruction. The dearth of life that began with the famine in Bethlehem continues. Elimelech dies. Naomi is now a widow left to the care of her two sons who take Moabite women as wives. Um, the text tells us, though, that 10 years pass before Mahlon and Kilion die. The silence in the text regarding any children coming from these unions suggests problems with infertility. You didn't get married in the ancient Near East without trying to have children. So Mahlon and Kilion were married to these, if Mahlon and Kilion were married to these women long, this is just another example of emptiness in our story. Naomi is now without a husband and without children. She is caught in a famine of family. Notice that the focus of the text is on the plight of Naomi rather than the plight of Ruth and Orpah. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them and wept aloud. And they wept loud. We don't know how long Naomi allows Ruth and Orpah to accompany her unprotested, but at some point, Naomi decides she wants to be alone. The reason isn't given to us, but I suspect it has something to do with the fact that her daughters-in-law are Moabites. They are forbidden for, from entering the assembly of the Lord, after all. Naomi is already returning to Bethlehem as a defector of Israel, if you will, and bringing Moabite women back with her will make it worse. These exchanges among women in the book of Ruth, by the way, are some of the only places in scripture that women have conversations without men. Then they said to her, oh, oh. I guess I'm missing a slide maybe. Anyway, they said, then they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back my daughters, why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that may, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I thought, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. We might be weirded out that Naomi is talking about the possibility of remarrying Ruth and Orpah into her family to her non-existent sons. But she's getting this idea from Leveret Law. This law is laid out in Deuteronomy 25 and states that the wife of a dead man shouldn't be married, remarried outside the family, but should be married to the brother of the dead man. Ruth can't marry her dead husband's brother because they're both dead. 
So Naomi is making sure Ruth and Orpah know she can't offer them a family unit anymore. They won't find social security by following her. Naomi says that her bitterness is greater than that of Ruth and Orpah. She sees herself as losing more than they have, perhaps because she has no family unit at all, whereas they still have families to which they could return. She perceives God to be against her. On this point, it's helpful to understand that the Israelites thought that Yahweh was the first cause of everything. If famine happens, it's because God made it happen. If a family member dies, it's because God made it happen. I also want to be careful here not to judge Orpah too harshly for not going with Naomi. She and Ruth are given the choice of how to identify themselves with Naomi or with their old families. Orpah doesn't necessarily do anything wrong by returning to the family she grew up in. We don't have to see Orpah as the foil to Ruth's faithfulness. It's entirely possible that, in fact, Orpah was motivated by her faithfulness to her birth family in her decision to turn from them. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me, and more as well, if death parts, if even death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. This poetic pledge is the first time we see Ruth model the sort of faithfulness God offers to Israel in the Old Testament and to us all. We see here echoes of God's faithfulness to human beings expressed throughout Scripture. I'm reminded of Psalm 39, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I'm reminded, too, of how God essentially says to Abraham, I'm committing myself to your descendants. Your people shall be my people. Ruth's declaration almost sound like, sounds like wedding vows. And of course, God's faithfulness is likened to marriage throughout the Bible. I have to wonder here how much Ruth knew about Yahweh. Elimelech doesn't strike me as a person of great faith, but is his wife? Were his sons? Ruth clearly knows that Yahweh is the God of the land of Israel, but how much did her Israelite family tell her about their history as a people? What did she know about his character? Did she talk about Yahweh with Naomi often? This passage is often read as a declaration of faith in the God of Israel, but it's possible Ruth is more committed to Naomi than she is to Yahweh. If she's committed to going with Naomi to the land of Israel, it makes sense under these polytheistic assumptions to commit herself to the God of Israel. Moabite gods wouldn't work for her anymore in the land of Israel. I think it's important to recognize the ambiguity regarding Ruth's belief system here. Ultimately, I think the book of Ruth makes the case that being like God is more important than believing certain things about God. We can talk more about that later. I want to point out that Naomi isn't obviously excited that Ruth is set on accompanying her. She doesn't thank Ruth for coming with her. At the end of Ruth's vow, the text says that Naomi merely stops talking. I grew up with the idea that Ruth and Naomi are this paragon of female friendship, but it's not clear that Naomi welcomes Ruth here or ever, which makes Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi all the more remarkable to me. Again, I think this has something to do with Ruth's identity as a Moabite. I suspect Naomi perceives Ruth's presence to be a shame and a burden. Even when she gets more involved later in guiding Ruth, we don't know who, for whose sake Naomi is doing this. Their relationship is never marked by the kind of appreciation Ruth and Boaz will have for each other, but we can keep watching for how Naomi feels about Ruth. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman said, Is this Naomi? 
She said to them, Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt with me, dealt harshly with me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi was obviously changed upon her return to Bethlehem. Her former friends and perhaps even extended family members have to ask, is it really Naomi? Remember that Naomi means pleasant. It can also mean full. So when Yahweh brings Naomi back to Bethlehem empty, that is, without her husband or sons, her name is no longer appropriate. She asks instead to be called Mara, meaning bitter. Notice also that Naomi doesn't say, I would have come back empty, but Ruth decided to come back with me, so at least I've got that. She says she's empty. In Naomi's eyes, Ruth's presence doesn't add anything to her life. It might even detract from it. Our last verse here refers to Ruth, this time adding the Moabite to her name. This description wasn't necessary before we got to Bethlehem, but the author uses this title here, I think, to remind us that Ruth is an outsider in this land. I mentioned this a bit earlier, but I'm still interested in how Naomi talks about Yahweh. Whenever she mentions how he has acted in regard to her, she says he's against her. This, to me, makes Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi even more remarkable. Like I said, we don't know how much Ruth knows about the history of Yahweh's faithfulness to his people, but if someone I knew complained all the time about how harshly her God dealt with her, as if God were turned against her, I wouldn't be eager to follow that person or her God. The text makes it clear that Ruth is not thinking about herself. She'll stay with Naomi no matter what, even if that means sitting with Naomi in her bitterness. I think one of the most wonderful things we can do for any of our neighbors, whether they claim Christ or not, is sit with them in their bitterness toward God. Ruth models this for us. Now Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a prominent rich man of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. She said to her, go, my daughter. And so she went. She came and gleaned in the field behind the reapers. As it happened, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. This is our introduction to Boaz, whose name means in strength. He's also wealthy, and he's a kinsman. The duties of a kinsman redeemer were to maintain family property, buy back relatives who'd been sold into slavery, avenge killings of relatives, and assist in lawsuits. There's nothing about having to marry a dead person's wife in like the responsibilities of a kinsman. Boaz's marriage to Ruth will actually be a blending of this kinsman tradition with the lover at law we mentioned earlier. Ruth feels the freedom to go reap in the field because of provisions in the law. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10 reads, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So this is the ancient Near Eastern version of dumpster diving. Ruth is doing this so she and Naomi can eat. Just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. They answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, to whom does this young woman belong? A servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. 
So she came, and she has been on her feet from early this morning until now, without resting for even a moment. It's interesting that the first question Boaz has for his worker is about Ruth. Notice what he says. He asks to whom she belongs. Essentially, he's asking who her patriarch is. The servant replies, mentioning Moab twice, emphasizing her identity as a foreigner. Ruth's lack of a family unit, her ethnicity, these things point out Ruth's plight. We've talked about Naomi's troubles, but Ruth doesn't have stability either. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Keep your eyes on the field that is being reaped and follow behind them. I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you get thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then she fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am a foreigner? Boaz sees fit to approach Ruth. His generosity here is remarkable, especially considering her status as a foreigner, and Ruth recognizes this. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. It becomes clear here that when Boaz sees Ruth, he sees her faithfulness. He's in awe of what she's done and blesses her. He doesn't appear to care about the ethical norms or social conventions regarding how to treat a poor, homeless, widowed immigrant from one of the people groups Israel hated the most. He sees Ruth's faithfulness and wants to be associated with her. He is participating in the sort of care for the least of these that Yahweh calls for throughout scripture. I love this passage, this picture of two people who embody faithfulness, both overwhelmed with the goodness to be found in the other person. This is the church at its best, I think, human interaction at its most beautiful. I want us to notice that Boaz mentions that Ruth has come under the wings of God for refuge. It'll come up again later. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of this bread and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he heaped up for her some parched grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she got up to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, let her glean even among the standing sheaves, and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some handfuls for her from the bundles, and leave them for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Boaz goes way beyond what's called for in Leviticus 19, to let the poor reap your scraps. Boaz is not a man interested in just following the laws of God and nothing more. His character is like God's. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She picked it up and came into the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned. Then she took out and gave her what was left over after she herself had been satisfied. Her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. 
Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is better, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. So she stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the first time Naomi acknowledges Yahweh's faithfulness to her. This is also the first time Naomi expresses concern for Ruth's well-being. Now that her bitterness has dissipated, she is able to focus on that which is and those who are outside of herself. We observe here that it's easier to love our neighbor when we trust God. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is our kinsman Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had instructed her. Here Naomi is again expressing concern for Ruth's well-being. I want to take a moment to talk about patriarchy in this book. I'm not a fan of the patriarchy. <laughs> but I do acknowledge that it was a societal structure in place at the time and that it could coexist with concern for and value of the women involved. I don't believe patriarchy is an ideal social structure, but within the context, I think Boaz and Ruth handle patriarchal stru structures in a way that is marked by self-giving love. Boaz is probably not a hot young guy. He was likely already married to at least one woman. It is possible that there's an element of romance in this story, that's true, but it's also possible that there's not any. Ruth acts on behalf of both herself and Naomi because they need security, and Boaz can offer it. This is not about Ruth finding Prince Charming. This is still about Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and he was in a contented mood, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came stealthily and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and there, lying at his feet, was a woman. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your cloak over your servant, for you are next of kin. He said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. This last instance of your loyalty is better than the first. You have not gone after young men, whether rich, poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. For all the assembly of my people know that you are a worthy woman. I like how not domineering Boaz is here. He asks who Ruth is, allowing her to identify herself. Naming in the ancient Near East connotated mastery, um, he does not name Ruth. She identifies herself and then freely chooses to associate herself with him in her response. This is not forced subjugation. This is willing joining with another. The word cloak here is the same word used to talk about the wings of Yahweh under which Boaz said Ruth was taking shelter. By using the same word here, the author evokes a connection between Boaz and Yahweh. They both, though of course on different levels, offer Ruth and Naomi security and faithfulness. When Boaz uses the word loyalty, he is making explicit that for Ruth to propose to him is an act of loyalty to Naomi. He states that if Ruth were more selfishly motivated, she would not have come to Boaz, but would have sought security with a younger, more eligible man. He thinks the fact that Ruth has come to him specifically is a testament to how faithful she is to Naomi. Ruth both follows and doesn't follow Naomi's instructions here. Ruth does indeed go for her sake to Boaz and risk her reputation and physical safety by going to him during the night. But while Naomi told her to wait for Boaz to tell her what to do, 
Ruth takes charge of the situation and proposes, literally, her own solution to her and Naomi's problems, further demonstrating her bravery and independence. A note on the phrase, worthy woman. This phrase is only used two other times in the Hebrew Bible, once in Proverbs 12 and once in Proverbs 31. Significantly, in the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures, the book of Ruth is right after the book of Proverbs. Proverbs ends, of course, with the description of the Proverbs 31 woman. There are several similarities between this woman and Ruth, and I don't have time to compare them thoroughly, but I do want to mention that the woman of Proverbs 31 is obviously wealthy and presumably an Israelite. If the reader of scripture begins to think that these are requirements for being a woman of God, this book of Ruth upends this. She is a dirt-poor, widowed, particularly unfortunate sort of Gentile, and yet her faithfulness to Naomi means that she warrants this title of worthy woman or woman of valor. This is just another instance of how the book of Ruth is a reversal of the Israelites' expectations. But now, though it is true that I am a near kinsman, there is another kinsman more closely related than I. Remain this night, and in the morning, if he will act as a next of kin for you, good, let him do it. If he is not willing to act as next of kin for you, then as the Lord lives, I will act, act as next of kin for you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before one person could recognize another. For he said, it must not be known that the woman came to the, the threshing floor. Then he said, bring the cloak you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her back. Then he went to the city. She came to her mother-in-law, who said, How did things go with you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, He gave me these six measures of barley, for he said, Do not go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. A better translation of Naomi's question would actually be, Who are you, my daughter? Naomi wants to know, has Ruth's identity changed? Has she entered into an alliance with Boaz? No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate and sat down there than the next of kin whom Boaz had spoken came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our kinsman Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know, for there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, Acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Mahlon. Boaz clearly wants to marry Ruth. He has manipulated the information so that the other potential redeemer declines the offer to marry her. 
Remember again how shocking this is, that a prominent, wealthy, an always respectable man would choose to align himself with someone who is a social outcast in every respect. Boaz is still modeling the love of God and prioritizing this over the law. And then Boaz says, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, the wife of Mahlon, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar, Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The woman of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. The people's blessing works. Yahweh gives Ruth and Boaz a son who will be a grandfather to David. Ruth really does contribute to the house of Israel's being built up. Against all expectations set in the Torah, Yahweh incorporates Ruth's body, a poor immigrant Moabite body, into his story of redemption. Ruth becomes royalty. But much of the focus is still on Naomi. She is no longer empty. The story leaves her with arms full with a new life. The story of Ruth is a story about how about Naomi, because Ruth is others-oriented, really Naomi-oriented. We're reminded of how Yahweh, insofar as he reveals, reveals himself to Israel and to us, is human being-oriented. The story of Ruth is also a story about Jesus, both because Ruth is an ancestor of Jesus and because Ruth is a Gentile and one of the least of these. The incorporation of Ruth into the family of God the idea that Ruth could be who she is and yet be identified with Yahweh-like faithfulness, these things hint at what Jesus will come and offer, the possibility of being identified with Jesus Christ and counted among his family, a possibility open to anyone, no matter how they have ever identified themselves or been identified by others. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram and of Abinadab, Aminadab of Nashon, Nashon of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. So, yes. Now we can talk some. Yeah. Dr. Wood? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know. Um, it might be that, um, that she has heard lots about Yahweh and knows that this sort of faithfulness is something she wants to participate in for the sake of other people. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting for sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Boaz his father. Yeah. He was one very great half. Was another person grafted in. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's definitely possible. That's that's all speculative on my part, of course. Um, yeah, and I think there's something too, like Ruth might have been more comfortable like staying in Moab. Like it wouldn't have been easy for her to be in Israel. So. I think so. Yeah. God is very in the background in this story. Like, people use his name in blessings a lot, but um, we don't have any, God said this, or God wanted this person to go there. Um, so, yeah, I think there's something to, like, I see God guiding this, like, in the background.
Yeah. Totally, yeah. Um, some scholars think that like Elimelech and his sons died because they went to Moab, like as punishment for going to Moab. But I think the fact that Ruth, like, like you know, is the one who kind of like restores, helps restore the situation, like, you know, helps us see that like God does care about these people, and that's like that's not the case. I think it's really important that we see how um, this is one of the stories in the um, Hebrew scriptures, I think, that shows us that this this law that God gives in the first five books is not a stagnant thing. Like, it's not, um, yeah, like, like God is moving towards bringing all people um, into the family of God. Um, yeah, I think this is one of, like, the like sort of like correctional almost books in the Old Testament of like okay if you just took this law at face value society would look one way but then you do have like Boaz is you know himself um, not fully an Israelite like we talked about and he's willing to like marry um, a non-Israelite and she's like lauded for being you know for being brought into the family and for her faithfulness to Naomi I think it's huge that a foreigner, um, a female woman can be described in the same language that God is described in the Old Testament. Like that's just, that's revolutionary. Um, especially like so close to the Pentateuch in the, yeah. Yeah, I think, and lots of people would disagree with me plenty, but I think God gives um, specific commands to certain people at certain points of time. Um, and then I think what we see in the Old Testament is people take those things and really just the things they want to keep, like um, like the Jubilee, we don't really ever see kept, and that's a law in there. But then, you know, they do like... Um, it's like they keep these these laws enforced very strictly, um, the the ones they want to, um, and it it I think it winds up going against the intention that God had for those laws. So while, you know, the the law God gives to the Israelites while their nation is forming, saying don't like don't marry people from outside Israel, um, I think there his concern is for like we just need to focus on like your and my relationship right now to like get this thing started. Um, but it's not, 
it's not a thing that lasts. So we can like see, I think we can see God's love and provision in, you know, in every step. But um, I think Ruth is one of these books that helps us see that, yeah, like that it is moving and, and God at different times expresses his care for and commitment to Israel and all human beings in different ways. Very back. Yeah. Uh, but it seems to me like there's some lesson in here about how it's not about your nationality, it's about your faithfulness to God. Yeah. And all of that. Definitely. And I, I think it's a great, you did very well. Thanks. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting to me to think about, like, going along with that, like, did David know Ruth? Was she still alive when he was born? How did we get the story? It seems like most of it was compiled before. Like, most scholars think this addition about David is something that gets tacked on at the end after David happens. So, yeah, like, it might have been, like, significant enough to be incorporated into scripture without the link to David, but then, you know, once there's a link to David, like, bigger deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I was just curious, as, in terms of the research that you've done and, and the, uh, the study that you've done and received, the information you've received, if there are, if you encounter differences in how men and women have approached Ruth hmm. historically in terms of interpretation. And I know you, I was wondering about the commentary that you yeah. said particularly influenced you if you see gender itself as something that has maybe come into people's interpretations and how things have changed over time? Um, I honestly haven't read very much by male scholars on Ruth. Like, I really have just spent the most time in this commentary that's written by a woman. Um, And my professor who was teaching the Ruth and Esther class, like, assigned this commentary, and he did that on purpose. He said, like, we want a woman to be the one who's interpreting the story of a woman. Um, so I appreciated that. But yeah, I, I haven't yeah, gone into that. But thank you. <laughs>